In 2009, Chris Naka found himself in the back of a truck in the desert in New Mexico, unsure of exactly where he was going. And it's a little bit like getting abducted. I mean, the person who picked us up was lovely. Um, she was warm, friendly, answered a lot of questions. But it's the only time in my life that I've like gotten into a car with someone and I don't know where I'm going. I like tried to keep track, but it, it was really hard. Chris works on the show. He works with me at Alice Obscura. But back in 2009, Chris was still in grad school studying art theory. And he was not actually being abducted. Every other year, his MFA program would take this big study trip to see art somewhere out in the world. And this year, they were headed to the American Southwest for a tour of land art, these massive outdoor art pieces. Pieces like Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty, this giant 1,500-foot spiral of rocks and earth coiling out into the Great Salt Lake. Or Nancy Holt's sun tunnels, these four huge concrete cylinders that align with the sun during the summer and winter solstices. But on this particular day, Chris was going to see a piece by the artist Walter Di Maria. It's called The Lightning Field. And there's one big thing that makes it different from all these other pieces. The exact location of Lightning Field is like a closely guarded secret. And um, it's inaccessible by public road. A lot of the land is actually only accessible through private uh, roads that cut across ranches and have like, you know, cattle fences. So uh, a lot of people's land is actually like in order to access it, they have to drive through their neighbor's land. And there's a whole kind of like good neighbor system of sharing um, codes to these cattle gates so people can get to and from where they need to go. Chris and his cohort spent five hours driving across the desert to reach this mystery location. And it was kind of a big deal that they were able to visit Lightning Field. The art foundation that manages the site only allows six people at a time. You have to book it out months in advance. And there's one more requirement. All visitors must spend the night at the Lightning Field. Uh, there's like a, a small cabin that's located just uh, like 50 yards from this field of lightning rods installed into the desert. And you stay in that cabin and you can be at lightning field, but you can't just pop in for an hour and check it out. Uh, so. <laughs> so what happened? Okay. So they just like, are they just like, here you are. And then they like drive off and it will be back in 24 hours. Like what's the, what happens once you actually get there? I mean, that's kind of exactly what happens. <laughs> they pull up, they yes. um, show you around the cabin, and then the person says, like, uh, all right, well, I'll see you tomorrow at noon. Like, have a good time. Um, and and then they put a casserole in the fridge, paired and brought with them. And then that's your, like your dinner for the night, and they just drive off. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, unusual, and wondrous places. Today, we stick around with Chris as the car drives off, and we get a peek at this very unusual art installation he'd come so far to see. 400 stainless steel poles sticking straight up out of the ground, making a perfect grit as far as the eye could see. The Lightning Field, after this.
If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last crunch berry. No! No one steals my crunch berries. I think you mean my crunch berries. Choose your own crunch venture with Captain Crunch. So before we get to the trip with the lightning field, I-, I wanted to get a little background out of the way. The lightning field is associated with a-, a-, a movement called the the land art movement. What is that? So land art, or it's also called earthworks a lot. You'll mm-hmm. hear those two terms interchangeably. It's a art movement that really took off in the 60s and 70s when a, a group of artists really started questioning the limitations of the art world at the time. Like this is 1960s New York, Um, commercial galleries and museums were considered kind of the center of the art world in America. And those spaces really privileged like a certain type of experience and a certain type of artwork, which increasingly was um, moved by the pressures of like the commercial art industry. Like they wanted Mm. saleable objects, small paintings that could then move into people's homes. And in retrospect, a lot of art historians consider land art uh, a political movement, that this was like an anti-gallery movement. The artists wanted to create new experience for viewers. They wanted to make larger artworks that were actually situated out in the world and outside of these institutional spaces. So in order to do that, they pushed westward um, away from New York and they started building these like massive artworks that were just embedded into the landscape. like Nancy Holt, who made sun tunnels in the early 70s in uh, Utah, Robert Smithson, who made Spiral Jetty just in the actual Great Salt Lake, this big. Yeah, probably the most famous of all the the land art pieces, I think, Spiral Jetty. Yeah, and and Michael Heiser's Double Negative, which is uh, in Mormon Mesa in, in Nevada. And I know you've been to that. So that's that sort of land art in a nutshell. Maybe you could tell me about Walter De Maria, uh, the artist who created Lightning Field. Sure. So Walter De Maria is actually a pretty private person. And most bios of him start by saying that he avoided interviews. Um, he avoided gallery openings. And uh, I found out that even though he's considered one of the founding fathers of the land art movement, he didn't have a museum retrospective until almost a decade after his death. He was like very much an artist that was about uh, the love of the game. Like he wanted to create the work. He wanted people to have an experience with it out in the world. And, you know, he wasn't one of those 50s or 60s artists who buttressed up their 
career with uh, the publication of numerous essays that were just like manifestos saying like, this is why my work is important and better than everyone else's work. Right. Uh, Di Maria was just making stuff and people were like, this guy is rad and this stuff is awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's kind of, you know, a little bit of a, a cipher in that way. Um, mm -hmm. But one of his first land art pieces is called Mile Long Drawing, which he made in the Mojave Desert in 1968. And he basically just drew chalk lines uh, 12 feet apart for a mile, like just straight out into the desert. So if you're trying to picture this in your head, it just looks like the world's longest parking space. Um, mm. And this work today, <laughs> like only exists in grainy black and white photos. Um, it was like, again, temporary by design. Um, the chalk gradually faded as it was exposed to the elements until nothing was left. There's two things that strike me as one, land art is, it has a kind of confrontational aspect to it. Like, especially back then, it's like, my art is two mile long lines in the middle of the desert. Like, say something. You know what I mean? There's, there is a kind of like, a, a kind of really pushing and almost antagonistic or like very, very uh, almost confrontational style. And the other thing that never really occurred to me until you were just talking is, it almost has to be a function of the Western landscape because a lot of these works would disappear within like a year on the East Coast. It's too wet. It's too, there's too much foliage. Like you kind of have to be in a desert landscape to make this work and expect it to last any, you know, long amount of time. A lot of it is sort of intimately tied to the landscape in that way that I hadn't really considered before. What was your feeling about this crazy trip, getting to this cabin, arriving at the lightning field? I was really excited. The lightning field for people who are into land art, minimalism, and kind of related movements, like this period of art in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, which I definitely was and I was inspired by. It's a thing you see in art history classes for years, and, and people talk about it like, oh, if you ever have an opportunity, if you can ever make the trip, you know, you should go. It's really great. So when you got there, did you like, obviously you got the cabin and the casserole. Did you go look at the lightning field or did you wait till morning? Like what was the people's kind of interaction with the actual art piece? Yeah, we just got out there right away. Um, you just like walked out into it. Yeah. And then everyone dropped their stuff and put on some sunscreen and some bug spray and, you know, like some hiking boots. And then individually, we all just sort of walked into the field uh, at our leisure. And it's big. It's... Um, one mile by one kilometer, like it's a one mile by one kilometer rectangle. And all okay. these lightning big, rods yeah. are about, yeah, 220 feet apart. So if you walk to the circumference, which people recommended like to do at least once, it takes you 45 minutes to mm. walk around this whole thing. Um, so it's a big, it's a big site. So we would all just kind of walk out there. Um, and the most kind of interesting thing that we noticed, which is something I had read about the site, but didn't really understand until I was there. And I'm like, as I'm trying to think about how I'm going to describe this verbally, I'm like, I'm probably going to fail. But the tops of all of these lightning rods are installed so that they form a perfect horizontal plane above the ground. Um, right. The ground itself is uneven. You know, there's little dips and things like that. But the poles kind of vary in length from 20 feet to about 
30 feet to make up for differences in the landscape. Um, and what that does perceptually is really crazy because you have all the tips of these 400 poles installed on a grid are aligned. So as you move throughout the landscape, this like rectangle above the ground just stays floating above your head. It has the um, like marketability of like a meme. Like it's almost mm. like sometimes I think of Lightning Field as like the first meme artwork because it's like, um, That's interesting. you know, yeah. incredible. An artist installed 400 lightning rods in the desert and you can go there and see this like lightning storm and you'd have a little thumbnail in the text and people would be like, oh, share this like bucket list. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was a place I always wanted to go and never thought I would have an opportunity to do it. So I was just like super excited to experience this place that people write about and I've only seen in like slides. So I have to ask, you know, when it got dark, did you, was there lightning? Did you see lightning? Is that uh, a part of the experience? Like what is the deal with the actual lightning at Lightning Field? So there was no lightning. We did not see lightning and it's actually fairly common that people don't see lightning. I think, yeah. I don't know the exact like meteorological data, but um, it doesn't rain a lot in this area. And I think there's a, a small window in the six months that it's open when there's a high probability of uh, lightning activity. So most people that I know who have visited and, and you know, this is like years of taking art history classes and they're like, I didn't, you know, there wasn't any lightning when I went and, and yeah. the, the, the Dia Foundation website kind of calls that out. They're like, this is a sculpture that's meant to be walked as well as viewed. And it's okay. Like, it's not dependent on the occurrence of lightning. But, you know, yeah. to be honest, I was a little bummed. I was hoping <laughs> we'd get to see lightning because you have, it's like the Museum of Ice Cream without ice cream. You're like, this is the lightning field. And then like no lightning shows up. But it's it interesting was, though, because it's like that's the that's like obviously that's like a hook, right? You're like, ooh, a lightning field, like cool, right? And you can like you can find pictures online where it looks like lightning is hitting the lightning field, but 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 then when you go, like it forces you to just like engage with these more subtle aspects. It's like less of a sales pitch to be like they really look nice when they like reflect the sunset, like it's amazing. But then when you're there, like you you end up having this much more sort of slow meditative experience did it live up to your expectations i think it did um it was a really singular experience when i think back on it um you know yeah there's a part where you want to see lightning and you have sort of an expectation that you will see lightning even if you know that there most likely won't be lightning and then there's a piece of it and this sucks, uh, but this is like a part of travel where I'll always feel like I have some kind of credibility because I got yeah. to go to a place that not a lot of people get to experience. And in 2023, that feels increasingly rare. Um, and this isn't an expensive thing. Like you have to get to New Mexico. But I think if you can dedicate the time and can make the trip, you know, which is all money, like you can get there. But like, honestly, when I reflect back on this piece years later in my experience there, the thing I can't stop thinking about is like how much Walter Di Maria won, mm. which is weird. But if you, you know, you made artwork, like you, you make artwork. Um, I'm yeah. sure you've exhibited artwork. Like that's something that I did when I was younger. And 
you have like so little control over how your artwork is exhibited and received. Like if you're in a museum show, they're like, this is kind of where we're going to put this thing. And we're going to put this uh, loud video art next to it. That's just going to play constantly. So if anyone <laughs> goes to look at your sculpture, they're just going to hear like this chicken screaming. And yeah. Walter Dean Rio was like, I want to make this giant large scale uh, immersive sculpture that's a pilgrimage to get to. I only want six people to be able to see it at a time. They have to stay overnight. You need to be with this work for 24 hours. It needs to be maintained after my death. And 50 years later, it's still there. People are still going to it. The experience is still as um, controlled and ideal as uh, Walter would have wanted it. So I just, I think about that so much that I can't think of a lot of other instances where an artist has been able to um, control the way their work is received and viewed in such an extreme degree. And it's really worth it because if you're not there for 24 hours, you're not going to see the sunset, the sunrise and get to really walk around this like mammoth place. Like you need to spend that time and, and be out there. How can people visit the lightning field? You can go to the DIA Foundation website. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and there's really great instructions for how you apply. You just have to email them in February. Um, and that's when the reservations come open. And then they'll contact you um, with, like, you know, if you got in, whatever email, it's like first come, first serve basis. So on that day, whenever it turns midnight, send an email trying to get your reservation. So there is competition. But it's not impossible. It's not like winning the lottery or anything. But highly recommend that people go check this out. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Manolo Morales. Baudelaire. Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by... Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 